Well, praise God. It's good to be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. I know the Lord knows the way that each one of us takes Scripture. And he's able to keep us against that day. The scripture says that day because it could be any day. It could be the good days. It could be bad, the bad days. But as we um, get into my topic this morning, I actually feel like the last speaker on a seven-day symposium on baptism because it seems like everybody's just about covered the whole subject of Palm Sunday. But I, I remember a pastor of mine in, in, at ABI in St. Paul, he says, if somebody else can preach your sermon, you didn't study enough. So we're going to find out if that's true or not today. But I do want to hit Palm Sunday from maybe a different viewpoint than what Brother Reese did. And he did an awesome job. That was a great job. And I was just checking off the scriptures he read that were on my list. I said, got that one, and got that one. And Brother Calhoun, you got the one that he didn't get, so thanks. When I, I look at Palm Sunday, it's a, a, a type of a former rain and a latter rain. The Jews, since the time of, of Eden, actually, when God sent forth the prophecy that there was going to be a Messiah, I was going to crush the head of Satan and deliver mankind and the world back into his hands to redeem the world. There, they, the Jews for 4,000 years would always say next year in Jerusalem, we're looking for our Messiah. God's going to send our Messiah all through World War II. You would see that same prevalence, the persecution, the annihilation, it's always been a hope for all those years that Messiah would come back. And when we get into Palm Sunday, the, the things that were pre-leading the Palm Sunday event was the healing ministry of Christ, the ministry of John the Baptist. Here you have people recognizing the prophecies of Isaiah and Joel coming to pass, and they start to say, this is the one. And I think the clincher for them is when he rode into um, Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. They knew the prophecy. They knew the prophecy about a donkey. And they thought this was their time. Let me give you a little bit of a climate of what's taking place at the time of Christ's arrival in Jerusalem today. We've had the Herods. Herod Agrippa was a murderer. He was the one that destroyed all the babes in Bethlehem, trying to destroy anything that would represent competition. They're under Roman oppression. The taxes are high. They're barely surviving. The crosses of people that have died stand alongside the roads between Bethlehem and Jerusalem and Nazareth. People that stood up to Herod Agrippa were oftentimes crucified. And they would walk by those, cross, those crosses and listen to the dying people their friends under that oppression. So when Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem on that day, they thought their hope was coming to pass. But they were looking at Jesus differently than what he was there to do. He was there to redeem the whole earth, not one nation. He was coming to save his people from their sins, not set up a government on earth. There would be a time for that to happen. But before you ever have a revival and growth, you are always going to have death. There's always going to be a death to the vision before it ever lives. And as Jesus rode into Jerusalem, he realized the misunderstanding and the disappointment that many of these people were going to feel. So I'm, I'm going to read from Matthew 21, and I'm just going to hit the verses again because I, I want to make sure I cover every, every point of this. And when they drew nigh into Jerusalem and were come to Bethpage under the Mount of Olives, 
Then sent Jesus to disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and straightway you shall find a donkey. Thank you, Brother Reese. I thought I was the only one that did that. Tied in a colt with her loose them, and bring them unto me. And if any man ought unto you, you shall say, The Lord hath needed them, and straightway he will send them. And all this was done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek and sitting upon a donkey, and the colt, the foal of a donkey. And disciples went and did as Jesus commanded. And they brought the donkey and the colt and put, them, put on them their clothes, and they set them thereon. And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Others cut down branches from the trees and strawed them in the way. And the multitudes that went before and followed after cried, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he was coming to Jerusalem, all the city, all the city, all the city was moved. Saying, who is this? And the multitude said, this is Yeshua, Yahashua, Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple, and overthrew the tables of the money changers, and the seats of them that sold doves, and said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Notice the authority. Notice the strong action. Someone is taking control. Nobody's taken control up to this point. The priests that were there were corrupt. They were self-centered. The Romans, of course, had played their part. But Jesus started to cleanse the temple. That's where it starts. That's where regeneration starts with the cleansing of the source of faith. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. And when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were sore displeased. And said unto him, Hearest thou what they say? And Jesus said unto them, Hey, have ye never read? Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings, thou hast perfected praise. And he left them and went out of the city into Bethany, and he lodged there. Oftentimes, we picture events or things in our mind that not, are not realistic for the moment that we're living. And I think this is exactly what happened here. They, they wanted a new government. They wanted a government whereby which they might rule and have sovereignty. But really what they needed more than a government was regeneration. They needed the removal of sin, the curse of sin. Now, I, I'm going to talk to you, I just talk to you this morning, because even though we may be saved today, we still have to realize we must maintain the, the perspective from God's viewpoint of what's best for the world, not for ourselves. Our lives just don't affect our own little circle of friends. The way that you live affects a multitude of people that come that come come across you. You know, when I I look at this event, it's like having a, a party at a funeral service. Jesus is walking into Jerusalem knowing that the next time he walks out, it'll be to the hill of Golgotha. And then from Golgotha, they'll take him to a tomb. His heart was sad. It was not happy. You know, when actually Palm Sunday is like a type of what takes place in Revelation, the seventh chapter. And this is the true type of Palm Sunday, the rejoicing part. And this takes place in heaven. And you're going to find them waving palms in heaven. This would really be the true Palm Sunday, I would imagine. Revelation verse 9, Revelation 7, verse 9. 
After this I behold, held, and lo, a great multitude, which no man can number, of all nations, and kindreds, and people, and tongues, stood before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne, about the throne and about the elders and the foreign beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshiped God. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. Neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb, which is in the midst of the throne, shall feed them, and shall lead them unto living fountains of water, and God shall wipe away all their tears from their eyes. So this, technically, this latter rain, Palm Sunday, what makes it different than the first one? Regeneration, faithfulness through tribulation. These are they that came forth from great tribulation. It's not a group of people that are, are believing God's going to give them a new car or a new church or any such thing. It's those people that have walked through the, the desert of, of dryness in the world who fought battle after battle and been knocked down but continued to get back up. These are the victorious saints of God. Oh, this won't be the only time we'll use palms. To those that endure to the end, one day in heaven, we'll take these palms before the throne of God and we'll wave them before him, saying, Hosanna to the Lord, God in the highest. He's redeemed us. There's no more sickness, no more pain, no more sin, no more darkness. It's joy beyond my imagination forever and ever and ever. I'm um, looking at a verse here. I'm jumping ahead a little bit. I would like to find this or I forget it. In Matthew 23, 37 to 39, I want to point out that the day that Jesus came into Jerusalem, and a lot of people really don't mention this along Palm Sunday, he records in the 23rd chapter some things that Matthew recorded, and he says this, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets, and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather you your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I say unto you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So as these people are rejoicing, as they see the, the donkey as a symbol of, of uh, separation of Rome and of authority and them being kings and priests unto the Lord, Jesus in his own spirit is mourning because how many times as God in the Old Testament, he tried to bring his people unto himself, tried to convince them that he was their God and would care for them, but they would not. Now, um, Sister Eden, could we go back to that verse I gave you? Um, it was um, John, Revelation 19, 11 through 16. 
This is what they were looking for, and it happens in the book of Revelation. This is what they wanted to have happen when Jesus came in that day. He says, now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Did you know that when a king came into a land that he wished to conquer, if he came as on a donkey, he was coming in peace. If he rode a horse, I call it a war horse, he came to do battle. Now, when you look in Scripture, it's no accident that when Jesus comes back to the earth, he's not riding a donkey the second time. He's not coming to make peace. He's coming to take possession. He's coming to take that which was his, is his. And he who sat on him was called faithful, true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and he has on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Who do you think is going to be following him on his way back? The same people that were worshiping him with the palms in the beginning, those that were cleansed by his blood and faithful through tribulation, they'll come back with him when Jesus comes back to reclaim his possession on earth. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he had on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He came to offer peace. He came to offer salvation to those that reject his peace and his salvation. He will one day again return to bring judgment. I'm going to try to talk to you a little bit. So I, I, I got something in my heart. I try to stay away from the news. Every time I turn on the news, I, I get so upset. When I look at the millions upon millions of babies this country kills, it infuriates me. When I see people holding up signs demanding the right to kill their children, that irritates me immensely. I can't stand it. And then I, I look at the way that the world is changing its identity. Men can be women and women can be men. Let's teach our children that they don't need to be what they were assigned by God to be something else. Now, I'm not trying to be political. I'm just trying to be honest. It tells me that the Lord is coming. But I also realize, not in a negative sense, that the Bible also does say, where sin abounds, grace doth more abound. Even though we are living in probably the most wicked part of this world's history, and even though as we're watching the pendulum swing, this nation was established under God and for God, as we watch that pendulum swing back the other way, and Christianity becomes a group of heretics, right-wing extremists, that anybody that stands up for truth and morality is not worthy to even be, have a say or a decision in government. It's not an accident, and I'm not trying to be negative, I'm going to, be, I'm going to bring it around, that there are more shootings in churches. And I am, I'm not surprised because I know that when evil takes over a nation, righteousness is like a thorn in someone's foot. And they will try to rid themselves of that thorn in any way they could, can. When I came to God, I, I'll be honest with you, I really had a different imagination of what it was going to be like. 
people told me that when I got saved, I'd, I'd be clear sailing. I think it was the Imperials that wrote a song, Sail On. That was a great song. And that's what I felt life was going to be. I'm just going to sail on. I'm going to have peace that passes understanding. I'm going to have everything that I need. And God's going to protect me. And I'm never going to have a problem. <laughs> Whoa, that one was popped right away. But I've learned what the Lord meant. Because tribulation purifies one's spirit. If, you know, if I take the caterpillar, there's a story about the guy that had a caterpillar which was in a cocoon, and he put it on his mantle. And you've probably heard this. I think it was in Search for True. And he noticed one day that the, the little caterpillar, the, the cocoon was wiggling this back way and this way, and he said, oh, that poor, poor caterpillar, I, I can't stand to watch him struggling in that cocoon. And uh, I'm going to let him out. So he, he took a little knife and he slit the little cocoon open and the butterfly came out. And when it came out, it, it fell off and it, it landed on the floor. It couldn't fly. It's then that he realized that the reason there was struggle inside the cocoon was the caterpillar was gaining strength. So when he did come forth, his wings would be strong enough for him to fly and he wouldn't be just another meal for another predator. Your struggle, your tribulation, changes you in ways you can't understand. It changes your personality. It changes your compassion and empathy for others. Let me tell you a little story. I don't think I've told you this. Back years ago, um, I was pastoring in Plymouth. And it was, it was one of those times, sail on, the waters were calm. Matter of fact, we were, we were really having revival. And I was excited. We're planning on building a new church. And everything's going real good. But I had one thing bothering me. I, I remember in high school, people used to get planters warts from walking on in the showers. And it'd be like a fungus that get in there and it'd be like a little nodule and they'd have to cut it out. Well, I had something like that on my foot. So I thought, I'll just go into the dermatologist and have him take it out. It's probably, a, it's just probably a wart or something. And I went in and the dermatologist started to take it out and he realized it was something much different than what we, a planter's wart, by a long shot. And he said, Steve, I got to send this in. I don't know what this is. And he had, it had to go much deeper with the cut than he would have imagined, so it would put me on crutches. So he sent it out to the lab and the next day he called me back and he says, oh, I'm sorry to tell you this, but you're going to have to go see a doctor. This is really important because this is a sarcoid tumor. And he says, what's unusual about this is it doesn't usually grow on your feet. It usually, usually grows and manifests itself in your organs or your lungs. And he said, I want you to go in and have your doctor look at you and order an x-ray. Now, I'm keeping all this to myself. I don't know where this is all going. But I'm a little anxious. I did what most men do. I went to Google. Thank God for Google. That will scare you to death. I can find out every scenario, terrible scenario you, that you ever want to hear. And uh, I realized, yeah, that these things grow rapidly. And I went in and sure enough, the doctor says, these things are just all over your lungs, your, your right lung especially. And what's serious about it is that they grow so fast that they'll eventually cut off your airway. No real, there's no real cure for them. He says we could try to slow them down with steroids. So I went on the steroids. And uh, Brother Rob, it's, it's Saturday night. I'm in my living room. I'm teaching. I don't have an assistant pastor. I'm it. 
And I'm, I got my crushes laying there, and I, I take this big, I have, we have this really huge fireplace in the home that we bought where you could put a log like this that would fit in there, and it would just burn forever and ever. And I hobbled over, and I drug it over there, and I threw it in the fire, and I said, ah, oh, now I can sit. That'll take a while for that to burn. And I opened up my Sunday school quarterly. I'm getting ready for Sunday morning. What am I teaching on? Healing. God is called God the healer. And I looked at it and I thought, Lord, how is that going to look? Either you're going to heal me by tomorrow morning or I'm going to go up there on crutches. Well, praise God, everybody. Hold on, let me put my crutch over here. I'm going to tell you how good God is and how God is a healer. Oh, my foot hurts this morning. I said, Lord, I don't want to do that. I really, I really don't want to do this. Now, my family's in bed. It's just me in the living room, and I got my foot up on the recliner. This is one of those times. I'm depressed, and it's not funny. I'm scared. And I started to ask the Lord a question. And the Lord interrupts me. Even after the third word, he stops me dead in my tracks. My question was, Lord, I'm afraid, was this, the whole sentence was, Lord, I'm afraid to ask you this question. Like, should I teach or not? But after I got the word afraid out of my mouth, now, those of you that have never heard the voice of God may not understand this, and you can see how does that happen, and I can't explain it. It speaks to me on the inside. I said, Lord, I'm afraid, and he stopped me. He says, I find that word repulsive. Well, that wasn't what I was looking for. He says, because it shows me that you don't trust me. And it was the one time that this, this event reminded me so much of Jesus' ministry in the New Testament because as Jesus uses parables and he used to use trees and things to describe uh, a notion that he had, he said, do you see that log that you put in the fireplace? Yeah? That's a pretty big log, and if you were to drop that on your foot, that would have really hurt. He says, but you threw it into the fireplace. Do you know, Steve, that log is going to burn throughout the night, and it will provide warmth for the entire house. And in the morning when you get out of bed, you will be able to go sift it between your fingers. It will no longer be there. When this is happening, my hair is standing up on the back of my neck. And the presence that I feel in that room, Brother Jodan, I know the king is there. I crawled, got on my, my face and put it on the carpet. And I said, God, I feel so unworthy. It's, it's not an oh me, oh my, like, Lord, look what you're making me th go through. I'm embarrassed to go up there and say that you're a healer when I don't have, I guess I don't have enough faith my, of my own to get healed, but I don't understand. And I, I just knew that God put a peace on me. He says, no, you just go ahead and do what I'm telling you to do. That night, I decided in my life, I would never change God's plan because of my circumstance. No matter what God told me to do in my preaching, I would never change it regardless of what I was going through personally. So, um, that next Sunday morning, I got up and I brought up my notes. And I preached probably the best message I've ever preached on healing. And then I told the church what was going on. And I was honest with them. You know what? People want you to be honest. They want you to talk to them just like I'm talking to you. And they want you to be honest with them. 
And I said, this is what's going on, and every two days I have to go into the hospital and I have to have another x-ray to see how fast these things are going because the doctor's concerned that it's going to block off my, my air windpipe, and if they do that, it's, they're going to have to do surgery. And they prayed for me, and I don't like sympathy. As a chaplain, I don't want to give people sympathy, and I don't want sympathy myself, because sympathy only makes me more depressed. Oh, you poor guy. I, I'll be praying for you. I hope you make it. Yeah, I don't need that. I need somebody to say, you know what, brother, you can do it. I've been where you're at. I know exactly what you're going through, almost know exactly what you're going through, and God's going to help you through just like he helped me. That's how we encourage one another. So that went on for quite a while. Every few days I'd go in and they'd do x-rays and nothing was changing. It was actually getting a little worse. And then this is the cool part. One Sunday morning, I come up to the platform, and I can't explain this, I'm sitting in the chair, and it comes to me. They're gone. I can't say that the, there was an earthquake or the, a bright light or anything stupendous. I just says, you know what? They're gone. I, I, they're gone. I just know they're gone. How do you know they're gone? I just know they're gone. So I, the church is rather small, so I'm still working a full-time job. And it was a real pain for me to have the live in one city, has have the hospital in another city, and work in another city. And I, that Sunday afternoon, I was on a first name basis with everybody in the radiology department at the hospital. And I called and I said, you know what? I could I come in at six o'clock in the morning? I know you're there. I don't want to miss work over something that's not even there anymore. I don't want to miss any more work just because there's nothing here. <laughs> I, I could see her. Can you see her? Rolling her eyes. Oh, no, another one of those guys. And she said, yeah, I can arrange it. So I went in at 6 o'clock, and uh, they did the x-ray, and I said, well, make sure you call me. Now, for you that are older, do you remember the old bag phones? They were cool. I had one. I drove semi, and I had my bag one sitting on the doghouse right next to the seat. And I said, well, when she calls, I want to know what she has to say. And she called me and about 11 o'clock in the morning. And she said, Steve, I got the results from your x-ray. They're completely negative. <laughs> now, I'm Irish and I'm slow. You know, I'm a little slower than most people. And I said, you mean negative bad or negative nothing? She had her way with me. She said, I thought you were the one that was full of faith. Oh, okay. I, you got it in. Thank you very much. So that Sunday, I, I went, that following Sunday, I went back to church. And what kind of a service do you think I had after I have this x-ray? You want to talk about a, a message on healing. It was a revival. It, it warmed up our whole church. It was better than anything I could have ever done. And sometimes God uses you as a lesson for something else. I didn't envision this the way it was going to be. I envisioned something better than that as far as less painful and less scary. That's what happened with Palm Sunday. This isn't what they were expecting, but it's what they needed. You aren't going to get what you want as often as what you're going to get what you need. One of the scriptures in Jeremiah, the 29th chapter, is this. It's in verse 11. This has really encouraged me. And if you've got your Bibles, I'd mark it down. This is a really good scripture to keep by you. For I know the plans I have for you. 
not the plans you have for yourself, but I know the plans that I have for you. And believe me, in most instances, they aren't your plans. Declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. God has prospered me in ways that I cannot imagine. I never thought that my ministry would be a healing ministry. You know, I, I look back at my life, and I'm just talking, and I'm watching the clock. It doesn't matter. I'm still watching. It doesn't mean I'm going to stop. I just like watching it. It's, pretty, it's a pretty clock. I love it when preachers do that. I know you're not going to stop soon. Don't even say that stuff. Don't lie while you're preaching. But I, I'm thinking about uh, how God takes something that is so bad, like with my health. Some people say, I can't you do your job as a chaplain. I can't work with people in the hospice. I can't work in people at cancer centers. I can't work with people that are dying. How do you do it? All my life, I've went from one medical thing to another medical thing to another medical thing. I, I've come to the place I don't want to tell anybody anymore. It's just like another chapter in a book that's 85 chapters long already. But I say this. Because of what I've gone through, my ministry is dedicated to people like me. People that are in a rough face place physically. I'm thinking about a girl I saw yesterday. End stage COPD. 62 years old. Hanging on, struggling to breathe, struggling for every breath. Afraid. I'm not lifting me up. I'm trying to illustrate. After what I went through this year with my, my asthma and the lung condition I had after being in the hospital for three or four weeks because I couldn't breathe, when I saw her struggling, my heart broke because that was me for two or three months in May. I could not breathe. And I walked into her and I said, you know what? God's brought me in here for you. I'm the perfect guy for you. I am the perfect man. I'm going to sit by your bed. I'm going to hold your hand. And I'm going to tell you about how God's here for you. And he's not going to leave you alone. And you're, don't be afraid. He's got plans for you. And I just, it was, did more listening or sitting than I did talking. I didn't have to learn that at Bible college. Matter of fact, you know what Bible college taught me? It gave me wisdom or, or, or knowledge. But it didn't give me a lick of wisdom. Do you know what the difference between the fruit of the gift of knowledge and the gift of wisdom is in, in the Bible? What the difference between those two is? Knowledge is something that you learn from a preacher or from your Bible. Wisdom is when you apply the knowledge to your life and understand the principle. And a lot of people, when they come to God, they get full of knowledge. The wisdom part's the harder part because they have to apply the knowledge that they have to their own circumstance. Why do you do these things? Why is the question of the agents? I don't think we can actually ever fill it out, figure it out. How many times have people asked me as they're, they're in the situation that they're at, they're saying, pastor or chaplain, why, why am I dying? I'm only 25 years old. I'm 35. Why, why is my child passed away? Why? That's another topic I would like to address with you someday because I think God's helped me understand why. But here's a scripture that would help you understand why you don't understand. Help you understand why you don't understand. That's a good way to put it. 
For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways. This is Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As a pastor now, I think this is um, 45 years. And um, I think Brother Jodan will understand this. Anybody that's been in ministry long enough, I've seen a lot of people come into church. When I was, when I was in Plymouth and Sheboygan Falls and two rivers, three or four of these different churches, I sometimes would watch some come in and some go out. And I'd feel so great we'd baptize some and some would be in, actively involved and while some are getting actively involved, some are, are falling off the branch and they're going back. And I, I've listened to the symposiums that pastors share with you, the statistics. Many would probably put this at a high level. 50% of everybody that comes to God falls away. And you may think that's, that's not really accurate, but if you looked at all of the baptisms, all the infilling of the Holy Ghost, and you went back and looked where they are 10 years from now, you'd probably find the two. Why? Why 50%? Why so many? They became disillusioned. They thought things were going to be different than what they imagined them to be, them to be. They had their own idea of the castle they wanted to build. They misunderstood the timing of God. God things, does things in his own time for his own will. Let me show you something here to support that. And, okay, and I'm going to wrap it up now. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately saying, tell us, when all these things shall be, Matthew 24, 3, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And Jesus answered and said unto them, now listen to what I'm saying because this is happening right now. We're nearing the end of this dispensation now. Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that be, you be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. For nations shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you, and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. Now notice verse 10. Now he's not talking to unbelievers here. He's talking to believers. He says, and then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, because sin will become so terrible on the earth, the love of many shall wax cold. This is the generation that we're living in. But in verse 13, he says, But he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. Do you know what that word means, endure means? To suffer through doesn't mean you're going to be delivered from it. You're going to have to endure it. Be faithful to the end, and the Lord will give you a crown of life. And one little, one little short story, and I don't know if I should say this. I don't know if we're recording it, but I don't care, I guess. I had this last week, uh, we went to district conference. But I have to give you this a little bit of history about myself. When I first came to God, 
I got back from active duty, and it was hard for me in the service because I was a 150-pound skinny guy that was not intimidating at all. You could put a uniform on me, and it hung just like limp on me. But the one thing that I could do after I was 18, I was able to get enough hair on my lip to look like a man, like masculine. Like, guess what? I'm beyond puberty now. I got facial hair. I'm a man. Well, you know, when I came to the church, Brother Reese, the day I got baptized, I come out of the baptismal tank, and I go home later that day, and I'm trimming it up a little bit. And the Lord says, you love that mustache more than you love me. This is how you know you're converted. I said, Lord, I love you more than anything. I will do anything for you, Lord. Whatever you ask me to do, and I shaved it off. I said, I'll do anything. And I threw that black Sabbath tape out the window after church when I was listening to it on the way home when he said, we don't listen to that either, by the way. Well, so some people understand me. I've always liked facial hair on a guy. I think it's the one thing that my wife can't do better than me. <laughs> How do you like that? That's the truth. So, Brother Calhoun, we're going to district conference. Well, most of the ministers in our organization, they don't like facial hair. And I, I went, two years ago, I went and wore a beard, and oh, oh boy, they had, I remember the district superintendent telling me, to, I don't know if you want to come to this meeting because we're going to discuss your hair on your face. And I said, oh, but I told you that to say this. I was apprehensive about wearing it. I thought, I'm just going to shave it off. When I get back, back, I'll just let it grow again. And um, I decided I couldn't. I said, if I can't live for God in the midst of my own family, what makes me think that I'm going to be able to live for God out there? If I can't maintain my own identity with those that love me, how do I think I'm going to maintain my identity as a Christian in the world? And sometimes you may lose friends out there because of what you believe but I'd rather lose the whole world and keep Christ. So why don't you stand with me? And I, I think I might have hit the, this a little different than, than Brother Reese did today from a different angle. Don't be disillusioned. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in God always. And I'm going to leave with this. You answer me. I'm not going to tell you what to say. I think you know what to say after I say this. God is good. All the time. Even when I don't think I'm at my peak. And even when I'm suffering and I feel depressed. Even when I feel anxiety over a situation. God is still good. And God is still in control. And victory is just beyond the corner if I endure to the end. Praise God. I'd like you to pray with me. Lord Jesus, as we've come into this place this morning, Lord, we've laughed a little bit and we've thought about some of the comments that have been made, but Lord, each one of us has something in our hearts or our lives that is an irritant. Maybe it's something, Lord, that's causing us not to be able to enjoy our freedom in Christ. Maybe it's a pain in our body or, or an affliction in our thoughts, a family member, or whatever it is. Help us, Lord, to keep our eyes on you and not that situation. Help us to realize that every situation works for the good my good and my purpose in the kingdom of God. My purpose is to serve you. 
So I pray for each person here, Lord, that you protect them, enlighten them, and guide them in the way that they should go. In Jesus' name. I'd encourage you for a little while this morning to either make your, your chair a pew or to come up front, but to thank God even for the bad things that have happened in your life. Because those bad things that you think were so terrible, they've made you what you are today. This altar's open. King of kings. 